years back, we were on a youth activity, a youth event, and I think we were up in Tennessee, and we were doing some whitewater rafting, but one of the activities we were doing as part of this trip was we went to this, this rock gym, this climbing wall facility, and if you've been to those before, or if you've seen it uh, before, you kind of know the drill that you're, you're tethered to a, a support rope, and that rope keeps you, as you scale up the wall, it keeps you, if you do slip or can't make it, if you come off the wall, you just slightly swing out and you're back, right back to the wall. Typically, you have somebody below who's spotting you, and they're making sure that they don't allow too much leverage or too much slack in the rope, and then they keep you tightly connected to the wall. You kind of probably know what it's all about. In this particular um, facility, and I can't remember exactly why this was the case, but once you reach the top of the wall, which was 60 feet, once you're up on top of the wall, um, the way the mechanism was connected, you could actually go step back and then you could take a run and you could jump out above, you know, uh, across from the, the wall itself into open space and then you could swing back in and come back onto the ground. And some of the teenage guys, they were running out and taking huge leaps and just jumping out and swinging nice and far. And, and I thought, that looks a lot of fun. That looks, that looks cool. And look, I'm one of these guys, if I'm watching a reality show on TV or if I'm watching um, one of the shows where people have to do these great dares and, and great, you know, where they just have to take these leaps of faith, you know, I'm the guy who says, come on, you can do that, right? I mean, that's, that's simple. You know they're not going to put you in a situation where you're going to die because of liability and various other reasons. And, and so you know it's safe. You can trust. And so I had no question in my mind that this mechanism, the way it was wired up and the way it was cooked, hooked together, I had no doubt in my mind that it could support me, could hold me. In fact, a bunch of other people were doing this. But yet, when I got to the edge and walked to the edge and looked and saw how far down it was, and when I stepped back and considered doing it the first time, I just couldn't bring myself to do that. I just could not physically get my body to go to that edge and just leap off. Have you ever had a mental block on something like that? Maybe it's a dive off the diving board or a backflip or something, and your mind says, I can do this, and your body just refuses to cooperate. And that's exactly what was happening with me. I knew and trusted that this mechanism was capable, but I was unwilling to trust it to the point of taking that leap, taking that jump. And, and as we talk today about faith, I think that's a, an important element, two things that are important elements of faith that we're going to see in this passage, along with a couple other elements that are key ingredients to faith. One is faith has to have the proper object, okay? That's, that's a foundational that's given. It has to have an object that it can trust in and believe in put your hope in. And it's not necessarily God if we really honestly look at our lives and see if we are trusting God enough that we actually put our faith, our trust, our belief into it. We trust him so much that we actually believe in him. We, we put our, our, our life in his hands. So that's why, that's why scripture says, you know, even the devils believe. I mean, they know God, but they don't believe in the way that has saving faith. And there are many people like that who believe in a God yet they don't have saving faith. Now, <clears throat> being a guy in my 30s back in those days with a bunch of young guys, the last thing I would do was to admit that I was unable to do that. I would, there's no way I would go, hey, guys, I, I just can't do this. You know, come on, um, push me off. You know, I can't do it. I mean, I would not want to show any kind of weakness whatsoever. I would not want to reveal the fact that I was at a place of 
understanding my own inability to do this and humble myself in order to admit that and maybe actually get one of them to like give me a shove off the, off the edge. And those are the other two ingredients of faith, and we're going to see these clearly throughout this passage, this idea of desperation that we assess our need and our inability, and we acknowledge the depth of that need, and then humility that says, I need help. I don't care what people think. I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about my image. I know I need help. And these are the ingredients of faith. And so as we walk through Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 30, Pay attention and watch for these ingredients of faith that exist in this passage because in this passage, this Gentile woman, Matthew's account of this, he refers to her faith as mega faith, super faith. This is incredible faith. And so if we want to have mega faith, these ingredients have to be present. So let's look at chapter 7, verse 24 through 30. Chapter 7, verse 24 through 30. And from there, and you remember Jesus just had that big confrontation with the Pharisees. So from there he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for those here in attendance and just the, just by their presence here today, their their, their being here, it's a, a positive sign that they want to grow and to mature in their faith. They want to know more about you. God, for those who's maybe, as we talked about the last few weeks, their heart's not in it this morning. They, they're here, but they might as well be somewhere else because they just are having a hard time engaging things going on in their life. They're distracted. They're thinking about what's next. God, I pray that your spirit will begin to slow them down to this moment and they can be in this moment and just hear your word. And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I pray today that the words of scripture and your blessing and grace and mercy into their life will allow their faith to increase and grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, Jesus just finished this confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees over this issue of ritual purity, the washing of hands, their blatant hypocrisy, and the, the Jesus pointed out the whole point was, look, you can wash all you want, but washing your body isn't going to take care of your heart because the heart is what I care about, and it's out of the heart comes the sins that you commit. And so we went through that for a couple of weeks there. And now it's interesting that Jesus withdraws into a region that the Jews considered notoriously unclean. I mean, this was just a a total Gentile area. And I don't think it's any accident that this is what happens next. And in verse 24, he says he goes into this area of Tyre and Sidon. And these were port cities in what's modern-day Lebanon. 
you may kind of in your mind put Lebanon, maybe you think about our missionaries, Tommy and Rebecca Henderson, they're in Lebanon. That's where they are. And so this is the area. It's, uh, these are port cities on the Mediterranean coast. And Jesus goes there, and it says he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And so it appears that Jesus maybe went outside of Israel because he needed to find a place to rest. We've talked about it before, Jesus being all man, all God. His body got tired. He was constantly doing ministry. He needed some R&R. He needed some rest from ministry. Maybe he simply just needed a place where he could keep a super low profile. And so he went to a Gentile area where the word wasn't as known about him. He thought, you know, it, well, he knew the, the truth, but his disciples would not have known that the word had spread to that point. And I think, you know, he probably wanted some time with his 12. He wanted time to sit down and continue to disciple them. But uh, also, you know, he was, had this big confrontation with the religious establishment, uh, they were very angry, as we talked about. They're like it, it's getting more and more hostile, more and more tense. They're wanting to destroy him. It's not time for the cross. It's not time yet. And so he removes from um, the, the 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 leaders, the Jewish people, so he can uh, slow down the timetable. So so they're not pushing and and attempting to bring him down at this point. So it wasn't his time. And so as usual, when Jesus tries to get away, he's unable to do that. And so in verse 25, it says, But immediately this woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, she heard about Jesus, she heard who he was, and she came and she fell down at his feet. She fell down at his feet. So think about this, this idea of faith. Oftentimes Christians are called, we're called people of faith, right? We're called believers. But simply having faith is not unique. Even though we're the ones referred to as people of faith in society, um, truthfully, everyone has some faith. Everybody wants to be sure. Everyone is motivated by hope. Everyone holds to a set of convictions in their life. No matter how, what you do, what you think, what your philosophy and religion is, you have faith in something. But biblical hope, biblical faith, has its foundation in Jesus Christ. That's the object of of our faith. Our faith is rooted in Jesus. It's put in Jesus. And so we see this woman, she understands that Jesus is more than just this special rabbi, rabbi that's teaching. She understands that he is worthy of her putting her faith in. And so she comes to Jesus and she has the only appropriate response when we really understand who Jesus is. She falls down at his feet in worship. What's worship? It's our response to God for who he is, what he's done. And so she falls down to worship Jesus. She falls down in humility because she understands to at least some degree how great and how awesome and how powerful Jesus is. So verse 25, she fell down at his feet and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And we noted this several times as we walked through Mark that the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, the primary audience is Gentiles. It's primarily written to those who are Gentiles. And Mark was intentional in several places in this book to highlight that the gospel of Jesus is not only for Israel, but it's for the entire world. And we've talked about how the early church really struggled with the idea that Gentiles could be saved without first converting to Judaism. They had to obey the Torah. They had to um, keep all the food laws, the ceremonial laws. They had to do all these things. Israel was God's chosen nation. Israel was the nation from which the Messiah would come, the nation to bring redemption to the world. And God's intention from the beginning was for 
excuse me, for Israel to be a light to the nations, a picture of God's holiness, to display God. But they had fallen into this mindset, this false way of thinking, and they thought that they were better than and, and, and above those around them. And they thought that some way this idea of them being God's chosen people had made them um, special. But they were to be distinct. All these rules and these guidelines that God put into the law were there to make them distinct from the nations of the world. But with the coming of Jesus, kind of, kind of summing up what we talked about last week, these dramatic changes took place in the way that God relates to his people. Because God's chosen people are no longer a political ethnic group, but we know that the church is made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation. The gospel is for everyone. But the Jews misunderstood the Old Testament. They saw it as, instead of being lights to the nations, they saw um, the, the foreigners, the Gentiles, as those to be despised, those to be looked down on, those to be treated as enemies. And instead of seeing them as a mission field, they would have nothing to do with them. And they viewed these non-Jews, like this woman, these Gentiles, as outcasts who were separated from the kingdom of God, separated from the, pur- pur- uh, the purpose of God, and they were cursed unclean. In fact, thinking about the scribes and the Pharisees from last week, had they encountered this woman, you know what they would have done? They would have pulled their robe tightly around them, lest that woman come in contact with them and make them ceremonial unclean. And then they would throw thrown her out of the house. And isn't it ironic that the contrast here between the spiritual leaders of the day and their arrogance and pride in this woman who's come to Jesus just in broken humility. Broken humility. And Jesus, he doesn't drive her away. Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't touch me. Jesus invites her to himself. He allows her to come and petition him. In verse 26, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Again, Matthew's account, which isn't here in Mark, but it's interesting in Matthew's account that the disciples actually urged him to send her away. In fact, it says, tell her to go away, they said. She is bothering us with all her begging. How sensitive, right? She's bothering us with all her begging. That's found in Matthew 15, 23. So she's there begging for her daughter. She, she's petitioning on behalf of her daughter. And the disciples, who are probably trying to protect Jesus, trying to protect his space, they haven't fully comprehended much of what Jesus has said at this point. And so they're, get her out of here, Jesus. Get her out. But that's not how Jesus responds. But how Jesus did respond, it's kind of puzzling. It may make you scratch your head for a second because it almost is like that he's giving her this massive insult here she is, humbling herself, begging for mercy for her daughter, and Jesus gives her this, this comment that perceives like maybe an insult. Look at verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, being you're a dog, right? And so let's talk about those words. And there's two important words there we need to see. The, the, the one that we need to look at first is the word first. Why would Jesus say let the children be fed first. What did he mean by that? And then the second question, why would he further humiliate what seems to be further humiliating this poor desperate woman who was already begging at his feet? So this idea first has to do with priority. It has to do with priority. Again, in Matthew 15, the parallel account of this incident, Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus 
defines his immediate mission. His immediate mission was restricted to Israel. The purpose was to reveal himself to Israel as the Messiah. That was Jesus' initial mission, his immediate mission. But Jesus, as opposed to the religious leaders of the day, even the disciples, he never turned anyone away, regardless of who they were. If people came to him with an open heart, he never refused them. If they came to him in faith, he did not turn them away. Now, at the cross, at the resurrection, the mission would be radically changed. And in fact, I think we see this idea of, I've come to Israel first. I think we see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to receive power, and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses first in Jerusalem. So first in Jerusalem to the Jewish people, Judea, and then you're going to go outside to the Samaritans, Samaria, those Gentile, those disgusting people, those dogs. You're going to go to the Samaritans, and then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. But first, you're going to start here. The Messiah's immediate uh, mission field was the house of Israel, the people of Israel, revealing himself as their Messiah. And so first and foremost, the people of Israel. But the mission would expand. But then what about her calling this, him calling this woman a dog as well as all Gentiles dogs? Well, uh, all Gentiles were referred to by Jews at that time as, as dogs, unsavory, unworthy creatures. And they, again, like I, I said, they, it was, they were looked down upon. But many commentators point out, as Jesus used this expression of dogs in this case, that the Greek word here doesn't refer to the packs of wild, ravenous dogs that ran around and ate trash and feasted on carcasses, that that wasn't the word that Jesus was using here. In fact, some translations, you may even have it translated in your Bible if you're not using the ESV, it may say little dog. And, and, and the, the, the idea here is kind of the household pet variety of dog, the dog that you possibly have in your house that's almost treated like a member of your family, right? And, and so Jesus, maybe it, it was not as harsh as it might seem, the expression that he used to this lady. But nevertheless, this lady fully understood that the Jewish people referred to the Gentiles as dogs, and they were the children. That was, I mean, and so no matter how you look at this and how you spin it, it still wasn't like a great compliment, okay, to, to refer to her as a dog. It wasn't something that she would take pride in. She understood her position in this regard. And here's the thing. As we read the Gospels and as you read, if you ever sit down and just read one of the Gospels completely through, what, what's pretty amazing about Jesus is just his ability to pick the right word at the right time, the right expression at the right time. And I really feel like this word dog here is used in itself almost like a parable. It's used with so much he's trying to get in to this situation and make this situation reveal so much. But also, as you're reading through the Gospels, I love how Jesus, on Sunday, he just loves to ask people questions. People come to him with questions, he turns it around, and he'll ask them a question right back. Clarity sometimes isn't Jesus' main goal. Let me provide you a crystal clear answer to that question you have. Oftentimes, he makes them puzzled. and makes them go back and scratch your head and think through. And the, and the disciples, oftentimes when he explained things, he chastised them for their inability to see behind the words that he was saying. And so Jesus used these provocative expressions. He probed in people's souls. And you know, Jesus still does that to our lives. 
we, it's easy for us to come in here and hear the word. And many of you have been in church attendance for years and years. You've been here uh, a thousand times in your lifetime. You've read the word many times. And it's easy for us to go to the word and just read the word and never let Jesus probe our heart, go d- deep into our soul with his words. We've got to allow the Holy Spirit to probe deeply. Let the words of Jesus just get deep into us because as I talked about a lot the last few weeks, we are multi-layered. You peel off one layer and there's another layer and another layer and another layer. And we let people see what we want them to see. And we expose what we want them to expose. And only the Word illuminated by the Spirit will allow Jesus' words to penetrate deep into us and expose those things within us. It says the word is sharp, like a two-edged sword, just probing deep within us. And so he's going to use this entire incident as a beautiful illustration to what is required of true faith. It was a test. He wasn't being mean or harsh. It was a test. And I think what he's essentially saying here is, woman, you know you're outside of God's covenant people. You know that. Don't you know that you have no claims whatsoever for the mercy that you're asking of me. You know you bring absolutely nothing into this moment. You have no merit of yourself. That's what he's reinforcing to that woman. You got, you're bringing nothing here. And it would be easy for this woman, and it would be easy for us in these moments when we're confronted by gospel truth, just to walk away. Because we don't like to embrace the fact that I don't have what it takes. I don't. I I see you, God. I know that you can do this. But I just can't bring myself to do it because my faith is weak. But look what the woman does. I love this. She, She fires back at him with boldness. And remember, she's coming on behalf of her daughter here. She's coming on behalf of her daughter who's just, who's just being destroyed by this unclean spirit. And I love what Pastor Tim Keller says here. He says, there are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there's parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do whatever it takes to save her. I love that, right, parents? We know that's the case. And that's what this woman's doing. I mean, Jesus, she just comes back with this witty, courageous, faith-filled response to Jesus. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yet even the dogs. She doesn't get defensive. She doesn't argue for her righteousness. She doesn't say, and you're supposed to be a man of God, right? And And you're just... Telling me I'm a dog? She doesn't do that. She doesn't demand to be seen. I demand you to see me as a child rather than a dog, Jesus. Because I have rights. See me this way. No, she doesn't do that. She doesn't demand. She doesn't get defensive. She simply and humbly carries on the analogy that Jesus has given one step further. She accepts Jesus' description and asks for mercy despite it or Maybe because of it. She accepts it. Yes, Jesus, you're right. That's who I am. I'm deserving of that title. Paul Tripp writes, essentially she's saying, 
when the provision of the Father for His children is so rich that crumbs drop off the table, the dogs are able to eat at the same time as the children. I would be glad to be a dog and eat the morsels off your table. You see? This one word, and Jesus presents this entire parable. And we learn so much truth about what Jesus honors as true faith. He's the object. And you see hope. Yes, I understand, Jesus, who you are. And I'm willing to just to, to, to leap into your arms and trust you. I know that you can do this. And she comes with desperation. And she comes with humility. And Jesus doesn't turn her away. Jesus rewards it. Look how Jesus responds. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demons left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed. And the demon was gone. Again, back to Matthew's account. He says that Jesus said, O woman, great is your faith. Woman, great is your faith. It's, a, it, it's mega faith. It's super faith. He's taken back by how incredible her faith was. Because in this little short story recorded for us, we see the ingredients of true faith. Unlike the Pharisees and the righteous people of the day, she wasn't fighting for her rights. She wasn't fighting for her dignity. She knew very well who she was. And so quite the opposite of the Pharisees. She just embraced it. You see, weakness is not your biggest problem in your faith walk. It really isn't. It's the, the strength that you think you have is your biggest problem and my biggest problem. It's when we walk around and say, I got this thing pretty much handled. Maybe you would never say that, but the way you live your life. Because you say, I don't really need the word in the morning to get me through my day. You see what your actions are saying? Your actions are saying, I don't really need to hear from Jesus because I got this day covered. And maybe based upon the agenda of your day and the purpose of your day, that could be true because there's nothing really, truly God-sized that you're thinking about during your normal day. And so it's easy to think that we, can, that we have these delusions of our strength when our days are just easily handled based upon our own abilities and our own strength, our own knowledge, our own the theology and the things that we have learned over time. But when we're hungry for God to do something through us and in us, and when we really understand the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the incredible impact that it has upon us and our children and those we love and our church family and how easy it is to slip up or to say something or have a thought that exits out our mouth that begins to have a ripple effect and all of a sudden the work that God's doing in His body among us begins to be very fragile and weak because of dissension and fighting and lack of trust for one another. 
and reading into words and putting agendas there that maybe shouldn't be there. So you see, if there's this desperation and this humility that exists, all of a sudden we understand that we're not near as strong as we think we are. That's our real problem is thinking that we're strong. We embrace the weakness. Jesus, you're my only hope. And I think that's how we apply this. And I've said this many times as pastor here. I will use this many, many more times in the future. Because it hit me one, at one point, and I thought it was unique to me, that I like, oh, wow, I discovered this from Scripture, found out that, you know, this is, this is nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. Many people have written about this very thing, which I found out later. But I, it's a beautiful reminder of what God honors. So those of you who are Christians in here, those who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, again, I've said it many times, but it's, it's a great reminder of how we live the Christian life. When you came to the cross for the first time, when you saw your need for Jesus, when you heard Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's by grace, unmerited favor. It's by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourself, not by works. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast or brag about that. You come to the cross empty. You have nothing to bring. No righteousness, no merit. You don't measure up. And you realize that. You say, I need you. And you humble yourself. And some of you in here who have a hard time being real, and you have a hard time kind of letting your guard down and just showing your emotion and showing your feelings, particularly guys here, you may remember that day where God broke you. When God brought you to your knees. And maybe you were five or six or seven, or maybe you were 16, 17, 18, in your 30s, but there was a point where God broke you. He revealed his, himself to you. He revealed the glories of salvation, the person of Jesus Christ. And you understood for the first time in your heart that you needed a Savior because you were, you were not only full of sin, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And dead men can't do anything, can they? And you grabbed hold of the cross. You cried out to Jesus. I need you. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I'm destined for eternal separation and hell from you. I bring nothing to it. It's all you, Jesus. Completely all you. And if you've never had that moment, and maybe you physically weren't on your knees at an altar, but your heart would have been on its knees. Your, your whole demeanor and mindset would have been, woe is me, but I have hope because of Jesus. And there was this desperation, this humility. And when I came across Colossians 2.6, which said, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, so live in him, so live your life in him, just something went off there. The same way that we come to Jesus is the same way that we live for Jesus. I bring nothing. It's all your grace. It's all you. My best effort today, apart from the Holy Spirit, will result in zero good unless your grace shines through in some way that's impossible to shine through, through me on my own. I bring no merit into this day. 
I have no ability to do anything spiritually in the lives of those around me, those I have influence over, unless you live through me. Jesus, you have to shine through me in spite of me. And that's where we embrace as Christians that dual identity that we have. We're saints in God's eyes. We've been positionally declared righteous. We stand before God completely clean and holy only, though, on the merit of Jesus Christ and only upon what He did for us. But practically, we're still working out our salvation with fear and trembling, Scripture says. We're still seeking God and understanding that, that it's only Him that allows us to live out and become more like Him in our lives. But we don't do that. We don't come with that desperation. We don't come with that hope. We don't come with that humility where we say, I refuse to defend myself against the diagnosis the gospel presents to me. We don't say, I come to you, Jesus, because you're my only hope, not only for the next life, but also for anything you want to accomplish in this life. The lady came broken. Jesus said, you don't deserve it. And she said, right you are there. I don't. Please have mercy. Have grace. Let me have the crumbs that fall. He says, wow, mega faith right there, mega faith. We've used this little graph on the screen before because it's just a reminder of maybe for you on this, on, on what we're talking about here. And Sean said it so nicely in the video about this community and accountability, but we hear the word. God's word speaks to us. We're able to apply the word and act on the word, and we then, in community with one another, real community, under the hood stuff, not superficial. Let me give you the right answer, the teenage answer, like when I was a youth pastor, Jesus, God, the Bible answers for everything, right? And, and, and it's left at that level, but we go down deeper here, and we let our hearts be exposed in community with one another, just what we call intrinsically intrusive, intrusive gospel community that where we allow one another to speak into our lives. And it's done through K-group, and then usually we have to get to a kind of a deeper level with discipleship, friendships outside of the group, that you're, you're building those, and then you're getting together at other times, or you're breaking off guys, you're getting together, and you're saying, let's, let's talk about some of the stuff. And ladies, you're getting together and saying, Let me, let's talk really about how this flushes out in our life. And, and it's just this life that's a rhythm around Jesus Christ. And so you come to church, and some days you get a lot out of it. Some days you don't. But you don't say, you know, I, I don't eat a meal because it wasn't as tasty as that meal I had last night. You just, you just know that you need that meal. You need that exercise. You need that way of living just day after day, rhythm after rhythm, habit after habit, routine after routine, all built around Jesus Christ. And it's not anything you bring. And it's done in humility. It's done in desperation. It's done in hope. It's pointed on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And that's the faith that he honors. So, is your faith going to have action tomorrow? We always send those emails out, Living Sunday on Monday. 
because everybody has faith on Sunday. It's the day of faith, right? It's, it's the Lord's day. It's the day that we just, we even do things different in our community. Go to Walmart. Can't buy beer, right? It's, it's the Lord's day. We're not going to do this stuff, but come tomorrow, man, party on, right? I mean, let's do it because it's Monday. But church becomes like that for Christians. We, we do the religious thing, and then Monday comes around. Now we're in the secular world. There's no secular or sacred according to the Bible. It all is his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? You tell me. Uh, what? Word of God. Thank you. The word of God. You hear the word. You respond to the word. In community, you allow the word to speak and dig deep into your life. That's the rhythm. Let's pray. God, I thank you for just a simple but profound story. And I know that if I was in this lady's situation and this dialogue, this discussion, this conversation took place, I'd walk away offended, hurt, defensive. And God, thank you for that we can learn just such a deep gospel truth about your salvation, about who you are and who we are. And God, I pray that we'll live this out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, each day of this week. We'll see through your eyes the opportunities we have around us. The person in the cubicle next to us, the waiter at the table, the checkout person at the store. God, allow us to see this as our mission field, not people to be despised, to wait upon us, to meet our every need. But these are the people you've called us just in the daily rhythm of our life to love and to minister to. And God, help us to humble ourselves and respond through your power, through faith. In Jesus' name, amen.